1: This is the Area 941 Radio Wolinsky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wolinsky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Tony Horowitz, who died in 2019 at the age of 60, was a master of the nonfiction form. In books like Confederates in the Attic, Blue Latitudes, and A Voyage Long and Strange, he turned his research and his own personal searches into narratives impossible to put down. His work with Civil War reenactors led him to the story of John Brown, and in his 2011 book, Midnight Rising, John Brown, and the Raid that Started the Civil War, he took a closer look at the Civil War, at abolitionists, and at the war against slavery. This interview was recorded at his hotel on November 12th, 2011, while he was on tour for Midnight Rising. Tony Horwitz, while working on Confederates in the Attic, you got to Harper's Ferry with reenactors, and suddenly there was a little brain tick. What led you back to writing about John Brown after 10 years and the raid on Harper's Ferry?
0: I hadn't really plan to to go back to the Civil War, to tell you the truth, I'd moved on to other areas. But I I kept being tugged back to this story, you know, this incredibly dramatic prelude to the Civil War. And I think there's a problem with the Civil War, we tend always to focus on that 1861 to 65 period, and still don't probe enough how this war happened in the first place. How was it that Americans came to slaughter each other by the hundreds of thousands? And I, I thought John Brown and his raid would be a way to explore that. Okay,
1: you finished A Voyage, Long and Strange, which was kind of an exploration, modern-day exploration, of what happened somewhere between Columbus and the Mayflower, and you're looking around for another book. Was there anything specific that triggered it? Had it been in the back of your mind you said, now I'm going to tackle it? Uh, No, for me at least, books don't come about in that sort of
0: conscious a way. (laughs) It was really my wife, who's a historical novelist, Geraldine Brooks, and she did a novel, March, about the uh, father in Little Women. And while researching it, uh, she came across this group called the Secret Six, who were these New England reformers who were involved in supporting John Brown. And she kept sort of nagging me, you should should really research these guys. There's not much uh, been written on them. And in a way, to get her off my back, I did. And they're wonderful figures. They're sort of tortured idealists. They're more uh, her kind of character than mine. And they really led me back to Brown, who is this tremendous man of action. And when I began reading about him again, I thought, yeah, that's,
1: that's the direction I want to go. Your previous books have all been kind of uh, your own reenactment of reenactments. Uh, and you put yourself in them. This one is different in that it's pretty much a straight history book. Was that just something that arose out of the material? At what point was that decision made? Were you originally going to kind of try to retrace John Brown? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's a bit of a departure. Uh, There's very little me in this book, Uh, not much in the way of antics. I I do a little bit of marching on the ground, etc. Part of it is just that the historical story I think is so good and so significant I didn't want to get in the way with my own uh, sort of adventures in the present and I kind of wanted the challenge of of doing this but really I wanted to just focus on the 1850s and and really not break the
1: spell by uh, leaping into the present as I've done in my earlier books. There's a tremendous amount of material to sort through to get this Were there any previous books that focused in the way that this did? Maybe there were, but if there weren't, there should have been. (laughs) Yeah, there's certainly been biographies of Brown. The Raid is,
0: of course, uh, always dealt with, but somehow it seemed to me like it was always the last chapter of Brown's biography. Uh, rather than the main event itself. And also the many other characters involved, in my view, didn't get the attention they deserved, particularly the men who fight with him and the women who join his band. Uh, somehow uh, they, they've gotten a
1: little bit lost, and I, I wanted to bring them to light. Most of us don't really know about this, this raid. We know that John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave, but we don't know that much about what it is. In reading the book... This was the explosive match that started the Civil War.
0: Yeah, there's really this tension building throughout the pre-war period. It's sort of like kindling piling up along the the divide between uh, North and South. And at Harper's Ferry, uh, John Brown really puts the match to it. I don't think you can say he caused the Civil War. I think some kind of uh, conflict was probably inevitable. But he's certainly an accelerant, and he deepens the divide and I think
1: uh, makes the explosion when it comes more violent. One of the things I recall is the Raymond Massey portrayal. He's generally thought of as this crazed abolitionist fanatic, and yes, he was. But a lot of his ideas were very modern. His group, they weren't particularly religious. I was stunned at the end of the book to discover one of them was a spiritualist who didn't even believe in the Bible. They were young. He had the unusual capacity to see blacks and whites as equal. And that's pretty astonishing for that period. Right. It was astonishing really even for
0: abolitionists who were a tiny minority in the North at this time. He really lives up to his beliefs. He has uh, blacks uh, living in his home at many times. Uh, he stays with Frederick Douglass for three weeks at one point. And he has this biracial band. He really believed blacks and whites had to fight together for freedom. So he really uh, was
1: very progressive in his racial views. He also was kind of boring as a speaker, but on some level charismatic, and I was trying to figure out what kind of person he would be an analogous person today, and I can't think of anyone. No, and in his time, he's a little like Lincoln, in that Lincoln apparently
0: wasn't a a great speaker, but you read his words, and they have this tremendous force. Brown was not as eloquent a writer and speaker as Lincoln, but like him, he has this very expressive, direct style, a way of cutting through the fog. And I think it was really his words, when printed in the papers of the day, that had their uh, greatest impact.
1: And by the time he raided Harper's Ferry, he was in his late 50s, he was a famous guy.
0: Yeah, or notorious, depending which side you're on. One of the things that's remarkable about Brown is uh, he emerges as a a militant abolitionist on the national scene in his mid-50s. He's often called the old man. Uh, Most of his life, he's a a failed businessman, a really obscure figure. And then he really just explodes onto the national scene uh, in Kansas, where he uh, uses violence to resist efforts by pro-slavery forces there. And that's really when
1: uh, he becomes known. And the United States at the time, in an interview, you said that the most surprising thing was that the United States was pretty much run by the South and people in the North had very, very little to do with what was really going on, which is why slavery was still around. One, the, the cotton economy was just
0: huge. Uh, it was by far the nation's largest export. It's driving northern mills and and European ones as well. Uh, so there was a tre- tremendous economic interest. But also, the South really uh, was kind of the brasher, bullying region. It was really holding sway over, over much of Washington. And so many anti-slavery northerners felt kind of Pushed around and beaten up a, a little like uh, liberal Democrats today. <laughs> Why is no one standing up to these thugs? And this is
1: what Brown does. He punches back. And the entire abolitionist movement, I guess I thought that it dated back to, you know before the revolution, and you know, they made the compromises. But in fact, the abolitionist movement, per se, just came up in the 1840s. It wasn't really something anyone thought
0: about. In this country, it was late, say, compared to uh, England. Uh, It was really the 1830s when it first emerges. William Lloyd Garrison is really the leader of this first uh, organized uh, abolitionist movement. Prior to that, efforts to end slavery focused on much sort of gentler, gradual, compensated uh, emancipation and then uh, shipping freed blacks uh, back to Africa because they couldn't live as equals to whites. So really, it's only for the few decades before the Civil War that this movement arises, and it's really a a marginal movement for most of that period. Until Kansas. Yeah, Kansas is one of many um, uh, moments in the 1850s where it's really an insult to the North. There are the Fugitive Slave Act, the Dred Scott decision, there are these things that just push people over the edge. Uh, And when Kansas is open to settlement and there's the possibility that it's going to become a slave state, breaking earlier compromises, it really becomes the flashpoint. Among other things, it leads to the creation of the Republican Party, which in those days, of course, was very different
1: to today, a party uh, based on ending the expansion of slavery. Well, we've heard of the Dred Scott decision, but a lot of people, myself included, actually kind of forgot what it was.
0: Yeah, part of my book is, is almost a primer, uh, hopefully a, a fairly lively one, reminding us all of these things we learned in school. Uh, Dred Scott was a Supreme Court decision in which a, uh, uh, a slave was denied his freedom, even though he had lived in the North. But what was shocking about it was really some of the statements in the judgment that, in effect, uh, black people had no rights, that whites need respect. Essentially, that blacks uh, were never intended to be citizens or have uh, the rights of other Americans. So it's one of many, examples of just really how uh, frustrating
1: it was for anti-slavery northerners in this period. And the people who made the decision on the Supreme Court, are they kind of like the Scalia's and Alito's of their time? Well, they were uh,
0: mostly Southerners. Taney, who writes the opinion, is a Southerner, many of them slaveholders. Most of the, the presidents between the nation's founding in the Civil War are slaveholders, and ones who aren't are often uh, uh, what they call doe faces, sort of these weak northern Democrats who were uh, malleable in the hands of slaveholders. So uh,
1: really, they had tremendous clout over government. Well, Tony Horwitz. Were you aware of the way the South kind of has controlled the propaganda when you walked into this? Or were you still surprised by how much they controlled it as you did your research? Well, I wasn't entirely surprised in that I think
0: uh, Gone with the Wind more the, you know, has done more to shape American uh, memory of the Civil War than, uh, you know, the hundreds of thousands of scholarly books done. And also we look back at this era through the prism of the South's loss in the Civil War. So it has this aura of underdog and lost cause, I I really wanted to uh, overturn that and, and really show what it was like for Americans in the
1: 1850s who couldn't see the future and how they felt. As you're doing your research, that's when you discover it isn't just John Brown. It's this huge family of his and a whole group of other people. And in reading this, I noticed, number one, mostly men because it was still a sexist society they were mostly young and they were all (laughs) (laughs) good-looking
0: yeah the raiders he assembles in his mountain hideout near harper's ferry we have photographs of all uh, most of them not all of them and they are they're a very striking (laughs) dashing band and they are young men i mean they're you know adventurous uh, they misbehave and they spend a lot of time courting women you know they're risking their lives <laughs> to free 4 million slaves and save the soul of the nation and they're working that line hard with the girls so i had
1: a lot of fun with the the love letters and the you know the the individual stories here and it looks as if you know reading between the lines when they hung out together they really goofed on the guy i mean they kind mm-hmm. of made fun of him Yeah. I mean, most of them uh, regarded themselves as what
0: they called infidels. He was a staunch Calvinist, and really they didn't follow his religious beliefs. They weren't blind cult followers. They were you know, individuals who shared his burning uh, conviction that slavery had to be taken on by force. But otherwise, they were very diverse, and he was quite tolerant of that. If you were willing to fight for this cause,
1: uh, he might not approve of uh, some of the behavior, but he wasn't going to turn you out of the band. Well, I I guess that when he did his day Bible readings, they were sitting around cracking jokes and kicking each other. <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I, I can't say I, I, I saw that. They do
0: mock him a bit in his letters, but also his sons. He has this large family. All of his sons who, who survived to adulthood fight with him, either in Kansas or Virginia, and they are, also don't believe in, in his religion, and they do make fun of it and talk about sort of poking each other
1: while he's doing their, you know, the morning Bible reading. And the women were not exactly happy that they were being excluded either. Annie in particular, his daughter.
0: Well, in fact, they weren't excluded. Annie uh, to me is is perhaps the single most remarkable character in this whole drama. She's uh, at the time a teenager and goes uh, to join Brown in his mountain hideout uh, with her uh, sister-in-law. And they act as camouflage and lookouts for the band. You know, if a passerby comes and wonders what's going on at this farmhouse, she meets them in the yard and plays the part of Ordinary Farm Girl while the fighters are uh, huddling out of sight in the farmhouse attic. So she's uh, intimately involved in this. She's not part of the armed raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, But this really is a family affair.
1: Then um, we get a little bit mysterious in the actual raid. Okay, he decides he's going to do something. What he does is he takes his men, they set it up in advance, he takes his men, they march into this armory in this town called Harper's Ferry, one of the few American armories, with just 18 people pretending to be 300. Yeah. And what then? I mean, you keep asking the question over and over, What the hell was he
0: doing? (laughs) Right. Well, his ostensible military plan was to seize. This is one of only two federal armories, 100,000 guns. He's going to seize these guns. He's going to begin freeing and arming slaves, then uh, take back to the mountains and continue south in this sort of rolling campaign of liberation. I don't think it was a terribly realistic plan. He doesn't execute it well. And what I explore in the book is that while he hoped this scheme would succeed, He was also fully prepared for martyrdom in Harpers Ferry. And what he really wanted to do was shock the nation and jolt it into confronting this issue and bring on the great conflict that he thought was necessary to end slavery. So while his military plan failed, he
1: succeeded in his broader scheme. You're listening to an interview with Tony Horowitz, whose latest book is titled Midnight Rising. You know, I had a thought while you were talking there, I kept thinking of Dick Cheney expecting the Iraqi people to suddenly rise up and support the Americans and I wonder maybe John Brown figured there were more slaves hanging out in Harper's Ferry and a whole bunch of secret abolitionists who would suddenly join him take all the guns and distribute them throughout plantations in the South.
0: Yeah, I think, again, his his hope was certainly slaves would join him en masse. And also he thought that working people in uh, Harpers Ferry, which was, after all, an industrial town, not many slave owners, uh, that they might join him. But again, I think this uh, wasn't hugely realistic, and he also didn't prepare for it. He didn't alert slaves in the surrounding area, so they really had no way of knowing what was going on, and also were unlikely to you know, uh, throw in their chances with these you know, 18 abolitionists. I think they knew well the consequences of getting involved
1: in this. Charles Tidd and Cook, I mean, they were outside, and they were kind of working from the outside of Harpers Ferry and they knew that the entire plan was ridiculous. It appears that Brown made some promises that he didn't
0: carry through on. Now, again, these men weren't uh, suicidal zealots. They uh, they were willing to risk their lives, but uh, I don't think they were prepared for a suicide strike. And it appears that Brown uh, made promises to his men that he would do certain things, like burn the bridges around Harpers Ferry, that would make it harder for Virginians to counterattack. But he doesn't do any of these things. And it leaves uh, Charles Tidd and John Cook, two of his men, very experienced fighters from Kansas, Wondering, essentially, as they you know, put it, what, you know, what is the old man up
1: to? And in terms of the actual event, there's a huge amount of research. So you were able to almost do an hour-by-hour, step-by-step, via map story of what exactly happened. Yeah.
0: One of the things that's wonderful about this story, the Telegraph has recently been introduced. Unlike our own era, newspapers and newswires are on the rise. And this is one of the uh, first breaking news stories in the nation. So you have correspondents rushing to the scene uh, almost immediately. So we have detailed news coverage. We have court testimony after the event. We have the letters and diaries of of the characters involved. So yeah, it's it's possible to really reconstruct blow by blow this uh, several days of intense drama and then the the court and prison drama that follows.
1: And everybody's pretty literate so they can write very well about these events. Wonderful letters. I mean this is really
0: my favorite part of it was the re- research reading the letters. I had a friend who, who read some of it and said they all talk like uh, characters in the Coen brothers movie True Grit. You know there's <laughs> a, a a kind of wonderful archaic expressiveness uh, to it and
1: yeah it's something we've lost sadly. Uh, they're, they're really wonderful letter writers. And and this one guy who you know he's in love with this woman from out of town, and she just never even recognized him as somebody she cared about at all. And he kept thinking he was engaged to her. Yeah, <laughs> this is my favorite romance in the story. Aaron
0: Stevens, who's apparently this tall, broad-shouldered, devastatingly handsome man, and once he's captured, northern women begin writing to him from all over the country. I love you. I have seen your picture, etc. But the one woman who, who's resistant to his charms is this uh, Jenny Dunbar, this music teacher. He's fallen in love with. Uh, and he keeps begging her to return his love, and she does come to visit him in prison finally, uh, alas, on the night
1: before his execution. Well, two questions. You've said in an interview that you think that if John Brown was actually killed at Harper's Ferry, we wouldn't have seen what happened in the trial or anything like that. and It might have been forgotten. Number one, you think that's true, I mean, that it wouldn't have been a spark, and the second thing is once he was captured, he was eventually killed and martyred, and everybody was afraid he'd be martyred. What if he had just gone to prison?
0: Yeah, well, first, rather miraculously, he survives the raid. Uh, most of his men are killed. He's wounded, but he does survive. And I think if he had died there in the Armory Engine House, this still would have been a big event. But where he really triumphs is in the six weeks between his capture and his hanging, when in court and in prison, he shows uh, such courage and eloquence uh, in talking about, you know, why he had done what he did and really confronting Americans and saying, which side are you on? And this is the great irony of the story is this man of action, at least in, is how he thinks of himself, fails in his action and then triumphs through the power of his words. And if he had been sent to prison. Yeah, it's a question that people are asking at the time. A lot of people are begging the uh, governor of Virginia uh, to commute his sentence, his death sentence. Even Southerners, they're saying, you know, you're going to make a martyr out of him. And for all kinds of complicated reasons, the governor resists these pleas. It's an interesting question whether he would have been uh, as much of a martyr, because it's really his hanging that brings this outpouring of uh, grief and adoration. He's really turned into a Christ figure in the North. And this in turn drives the South nuts. They're saying, gosh, this guy we've just hanged for treason and insurrection, and they're treating him as a hero. Uh, you know, Northerners are all
1: really closet abolitionists, and we are two nations. And it seems as if this tipping point was getting there anyway. It would have had to have gotten there because this triggered it so quickly. Yeah, it really exposes
0: just how deep the divide is, and almost immediately you have cries for secession. Jefferson Davis saying, "We will dissever the ties that bond us, even if it rushes us into a sea of blood." I mean, you really have this war talk uh, almost immediately. So I think it is, uh, as you put it, it's a it's a tipping point. So that tension is. Is there, but I think it's possible the nation might have muddled on for some time longer, sought various compromises, and I think at this point uh, the South in particular begins mobilizing
1: for secession and war. Let's suppose he had died mm-hmm. and it had kind of faded a little bit. Probably means Lincoln would never have been elected.
0: Yeah, this happens during uh, the early uh, period of a presidential campaign. And at the time, Lincoln is really a second tier candidate, sort of a Rick Santorum or something in the Republican field. By using Brown as a foil, and positioning himself as sort of the moderate in the Republican field and saying, you know, this is not what the Republican Party is about. We're not about violence. We're not John Brown. Really helped him get the nomination. And it also divided the Democratic field. Brown's raid really helped split the Democratic Party so that uh, Lincoln is able to win uh, with 39% of the vote. So I think it's very possible to argue uh,
1: Lincoln would not have been elected were it not for uh, Brown and his raid. Tony Horwitz. We have this idea of Lincoln as a hero, but in fact he kind of felt compelled to do the Emancipation Proclamation. He was kind of a moderate. In fact, he sort of reminds me in a weird way, but not in a good way, of Obama. (laughs) Yeah, he's a very
0: reluctant emancipator. And on the spectrum of anti-slavery opinion, he was definitely on the the moderate to conservative side. He resists calls for emancipation all through the uh, first year of the war. He says it would be like a John Brown raid on a massive scale, and he meant that disapprovingly. And it's really uh, only because the war is going so badly and he comes to recognize that he needs to do this as a war measure that he finally does. And and that's another irony to this story is he ultimately essentially comes around to Brown's position. And by the time he's assassinated, he's giving speeches that really sound quite a bit like Brown, that we needed blood sacrifice to, to purge the land of this great crime.
1: It seems as if once it became clear that slavery was going to disappear, suddenly everyone, slaveholders and otherwise, came out of the woodwork to say, oh my god, this is a terrible thing. Oh, you mean so after
0: the after the <laughs> yeah. fact? Yeah. For instance, the Virginia governor, who right. who essentially hangs Brown and is this you know real uh, uh, you know staunch secessionist, and he's not a radical, but he's a pretty hot-headed Southerner. After the war, says you know essentially affirms Brown's view that uh, uh, only violence could tear us away from this idol of slavery. But a lot of this, yes, is is after the fact. They're not uh, willing to let go of it at the beginning.
1: The aftermath of the raid brought Robert E. Lee, Jeb Stuart, and Stonewall Jackson into the mix, and Jefferson Davis making speeches. Suddenly, we're talking about all the major Southern participants in the Civil War being involved directly in Harper's Ferry.
0: Yeah, it's it's weird. It's almost a dress rehearsal for the Confederacy. You have uh, Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stuart are leading Marines in a counterattack. Stonewall Jackson arrives later, as does John Wilkes Booth, who is evidently uh, somewhat inspired by Brown's act. He hates what he stands for, but here's a man who changes history with an act of violence. And six years later, he, he does the same by assassinating Lincoln. Uh, so you do have this Uh, you know, astonishing assemblage of both north and south of prominent people, particularly
1: in the upcoming Civil War, drawn into this uh, conflict. Also afterward, most of the participants who survived died in the Civil War, except for one. Right.
0: Five of Brown's men uh, get away. Several of them are killed in the war, and one, a a black printer from Canada, survives it only to uh, die a short time later. And really, the only long-term survivor is uh, one of Brown's sons, Owen Brown, uh, who ends up a hermit on a mountain in Southern California, (laughs) Owen Brown. And if any of you have read the Russell Banks uh, uh, novel, Cloud Splitter, it's uh, largely told through uh, Owen's uh, perspective. Annie lived a long time, too. Right. Annie Brown is sort of the last survivor of this very large uh, Brown clan, and she lives into the 1920s, uh, also in California. Most of the uh, uh, survivors of of the Brown family end up in
1: California. It seemed to me in reading the book that there was very, very little mention of what was happening, any pressures, anything being applied from Europe or America's trading partners. Was that kind of out of the picture at the time? I wasn't out of the picture. It becomes more significant during the Civil
0: War. You know, England in particular is feeding off of southern cotton. They've got very strong economic interests here. So while England in particular, but also France, there's, there's strong anti-slavery sentiment and actually strong support for Brown. Victor Hugo, among others, writes eloquently in, in defense of Brown. They're not, you know, meddling in, in our
1: affairs here. And so I, I think they are a little bit on the sidelines at this point. In terms of creating the book, obviously you put in a lot of material that you found. Was there anything that you would have loved to have put in if you'd kind of found a place for it?
0: Yeah. I think as with any book, you end up throwing away 95% of your research. Uh, One of the largest chunks I threw away was uh, material on Harper's Ferry itself. This is uh, uh, another reason I wanted to write the book. It's this very picturesque, history-haunted place, and it's got this amazing history, not just Brown's Raid, but its industrial history. It's really like a Lowell, Massachusetts. It's it's an early, innovative mill town. Uh, And I became quite fascinated with all of that. But when I wrote the book, I realized, you know, we, let's get on with the main
1: main narrative here. This is uh, interesting, but a, but a sidelight. You also walked from Kennedy Farm where they stayed before the raid all the way into Harper's Ferry following the direct route. At one point, were you thinking of including that walk in your book? Well, I do weave it into the a beginning of the book a little bit. It was the
0: 150th anniversary of, of the raid, and I was with a park historian, and we had a, a wagon and a horse, and you know, did it at the exact hour at night, and the landscape really hasn't changed, and uh, followed the same uh, route right into Harper's Ferry. So it helped me uh, absorb the atmosphere, and I think helped me write about that scene more more vividly. But really, apart from that, I tried to uh, avoid putting myself in my own uh, sort of reenactment of things into the book.
1: Okay. Harper's Ferry. You've got this bridge. You've got another bridge elsewhere, but you've got this bridge coming from Maryland over to this point. The area around there is is low, but then suddenly this hill up. Is that pretty much it?
0: Yeah. It's very dramatic scenery. There's a sort of thin strip of land uh, where the, the Shenandoah and the Potomac meet, and yes, the point that you referred to, and this heavily industrial area. And then this very sharp bluff behind it with these tall buildings, shops, and houses. So that when the battle begins and Brown is based down in
1: the armory, it's, it's almost a shooting gallery. Well, if you walk into that town now and you see that small strip outside of the one remaining building, the guardhouse, which is still mm-hmm. there... Have they restored it back to Civil War times, or is it now just new buildings and a a shop right or whatever?
0: Right. No. What's wonderful there is it's it's almost a ghost town. Uh, It has about one-tenth the population it did at the time. The armory was destroyed in the Civil War and the other factories uh, later by flooding, so that really only the armory engine house, John Brown's fort, survives, but a lot of the old buildings do. And because really there isn't anything new built there, it's a wonderful museum piece really of what it was then. And you have these mountains still rising on all sides and the rivers. It's a very dramatic place where you can really feel history in in a way that's unusual
1: in, in most parts of America. Did you go back after you did all, all the work to look at it again and kind of flip out?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I went back to Harper's Ferry repeatedly. I'm a big believer in going to the places where history happened. I also went to the sites where he fought in Kansas, where he grew up in uh, Ohio, his birthplace in Connecticut. I think it's important to, to see the landscape and understand that, And particularly with Harper's Ferry, the topography and the, uh, the streets themselves are so important to the conflict that I think you really need to uh, have it
1: all in your head as you're sitting down to write. Well, he was called Osawatomie Brown. That's what they called him, and I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was uh, the most common sort of nickname for him. Uh, Osawatomi was the site of a, a battle in Kansas, bleeding Kansas, where he first came to fame in which he had a sort of heroic stand. So it became a kind of
1: symbol of his uh, resistance. Okay, he comes in, but he leaves most of his armaments back at the farm. So he must have thought that he was going to get out.
0: Well, it's an odd one because he's bringing the arms forward in the course of the day. My question is, uh, talk about Coles to Newcastle. Why are you bringing weapons forward when when you're in control (laughs) of an armory with 100,000 guns? Now, he does have 1,000 pikes he wants to bring forward. He's going to arm slaves with these sort of Cromwellian pikes. His thinking on these matters, to me, doesn't seem entirely clear. And it's consistent with his business career. He was a, a businessman who always thought big and came up with these grand schemes that he then failed to execute. And he wound up in debt many times. Yeah, he, he even goes bankrupt at one point. Uh, he really has a very uh, a turbulent economic career where he uh, has periods of success but then gets rather grandiose, and he's very poor at money management. Uh, he can make money, but he can't seem to keep it.
1: In retrospect, we think of him as almost this old-time profit guy, but we're real just looking at the bearded John Brown of the last year. Most of the time he wasn't bearded, and he hung out with these people wealthy people from Massachusetts trying to convince them to give them money. Well, that's also sort of towards the end. But really, for the first
0: 55 years of his life, he's a a well-groomed, you know, American striver and family man. He, uh, yeah, has no beard until the last 18 months of his life when he's disguising his identity. Uh, He wears starch shirts and uh, business suits. Uh, Mind you, he's planning this for decades. So while he has this uh, uh, sort of business career on the one hand, he also has this underground life as a militant abolitionist.
1: It just takes him a long time to bring it to fruition. Tony Horwitz, why after 150 years is the South still fighting the Civil War? In California, New York, all through the North, we don't think about it, but the South is still fighting the damn Civil War. <laughs> I'm
0: not sure it's uh, as acute as it was even 15 years ago when I was researching uh, "Confederates in the Attic." The South itself is changing tremendously—demographic change, other changes. But you know, I think it, it comes down to uh, the fact that so much of the war happened in the uh, in the South's front yard. And, you know, for so many generations, there was the memory of of that loss and the family Bibles and and so many things to remind people there of the Civil War in a way that in New York and California, there simply isn't, and a sort of nurturing of that wound. There are a number of factors, but I think it is uh, slowly fading. I might be wrong. How do they view Confederates in the Attic? Some time ago. A a mixed response. Uh, I think it was very popular in the South. Probably, I would say, I I think Southerners have a a keener sense of humor than uh, people elsewhere in the nation, if I can make a broad, probably ridiculous generalization. And I like to think there's a lot of humor in the book, and uh, uh, Southerners seem able to laugh at themselves and at me in the book. There were certainly um, what I would call neo-Confederate, you know, extremists in some ways, who resented my characterization of this uh, belief in the cause. Uh, so I got a, a lot of uh, negative feedback from them, but otherwise not.
1: Tony Horwitz. Was it in the back of your mind at all that maybe you could write your first novel using this material? No, never, never? attempted to write a novel. I, uh,
0: I just don't have that gene. I don't know how to write fiction, uh, you know, at least not intentionally. I'm a facts guy, you know, a former journalist, but that being said, I mostly read fiction, uh, certainly for my own pleasure, and I think it certainly um, is in my head as I'm framing the narrative, and you know, how do you develop character, keep the plot moving, the scene, all those elements. In that sense, I think I'm strongly influenced by
1: novels, but no, I have absolutely no ambition to write one of my own. One thing about these earlier books, less so in this one. But even in this one, if fiction is about finding a voice, Tony Horowitz's voice is strong in all of these books, including this. We know Tony Horowitz is writing this book as we're reading it because you're writing to us as readers.
0: I, I don't use the word I in this book more than uh, a couple times in the, in the very beginning as I set the stage for the book. Um, that's for readers to judge. I, I did want to have a kind of consistent tone to this uh, and also to make it a kind of tense, taut, sweaty drama that I felt was true to the events. This is a very uh, tense, uh, dramatic story, these few months of preparing for the raid, the raid itself, and, and the drama after. And I wanted to sort of see if I could uh, uh,
1: create that kind of hothouse. Tony Horwitz, let's talk a little about how it relates to today. Obviously, we think of parallels to 9-11, not just in terms of a spark that changes things overall, but in terms of secret funders. Where do the parallels exist strongest, and where do you think it's a mistake to parallel? Yeah, it's a good question.
0: There are striking sort of operational parallels. You have 19 men, Brown and 18 others, launching what ends up being essentially a suicide strike on a symbol of American power, this federal armory, uh, that shocks the nation and, and leads it towards war. And you have these, yeah, behind-the-scenes secret six funders, a little like Saudis and you know al-Qaeda, and also, of course, Brown is a, a religious fundamentalist. So there are those parallels, but I think it's a mistake to uh, lump him with terrorists as we've come to think of them in, in the past a decade or two as a, a sort of either Islamic extremists or domestic bombers like Timothy McVeigh, who are killing thousands of people or in the hundreds in some cases, some acts. Indiscriminate slaughter, really. Brown wasn't like that. First of all, the death toll from his acts is, is very small by comparison. He has a, a clear mission, the eradication of slavery. And, uh, you know, in, in Harper's Ferry, he treats his hostages very well. He sends out for breakfast for them, he's not cutting their throats with the box cutters. So I think it is uh, quite different from what we've come to think of as terrorism. It is an act of political violence that's intended to cause shock and terror, and you know, in that sense, it fits a kind of classical definition of terrorism. I just think that's a word that, in our own time, has uh, taken on a, a different kind of meaning. And so, I, I think he's, you know, quite different from what we've come to think of as terrorists
1: in this era. Tony Horwitz, you spent many years working as a journalist at the Wall Street Journal when the Wall Street Journal news page had a huge brick wall between that and the editorial, and that seems to have changed under Murdoch. Have you been keeping an eye on the journal?
0: To be honest, not a terribly close one. Most of my colleagues there have left. I read it from time to time. I don't yet see some real breakdown in that wall. What I see is, uh, is something not just uh, unique to the the journal, is you don't have those longer pieces. When I was there, we would write pieces sometimes of, you know, several thousand words that we would spend weeks on. You see that sometimes, but much less of that uh, really in-depth kind of reporting that organizations just don't have the resources for anymore, or they feel that readers don't have the attention span. So, you know, I kind of mourn. Uh, the loss of those uh, long features that we used to write and you know I used to go weeks without even checking in with my office you know that's (laughs) it's hard to imagine today Well, it's kind of what they do with The New
1: Yorker. I mean, there
0: are similarities. Yeah, perhaps The New Yorker, but The New Yorker is a magazine. Uh, The Wall Street Journal was really almost a halfway house to a magazine. Maybe it needed to change, but I think there was a a certain fun in being able to do stories like that that you couldn't really do for any other newspaper. You know, a long feature on elves in Iceland that I wrote once, you know, to, to cite a really silly example,
1: along with the very serious stuff. Well, when you look at journalism today and you're looking at the feeding frenzy over the Republican nomination, you know, I mean, I didn't know, for instance, that there were enormous floods in Italy, in Liguria, in the past couple of weeks. And yet, all we heard about was some idiotic pronouncements by Michelle Bachmann and Herman Cain. Uh, part of it is is simply resources, particularly overseas.
0: I mean, I spent most of my journalistic career overseas, and you had not just the major papers, you had mid-sized papers in uh, Dallas and other places that had, that had foreign correspondents out in the Middle East. Now everyone has pulled back, and there's just simply a, a lot of the world that's, that's uncovered or undercovered. And the same at the state level here now. You have a lot of mid-sized papers in the country that just don't have the resources to cover what's going on in their own state. So I think that's a big part of the problem, and yeah, there just seems to be this endless appetite for, uh, you know, the the latest idiocy, um, you know, that can be tweeted about and, and uh, batted about on cable TV. And uh, let's face it, the Republican uh, primaries are well, not yet primaries. The Republican race is
1: uh, providing plenty of fodder for that. Yeah, it's, it's joke fodder, though. I I don't see it. Most of it, I don't see as serious. I wish it was just joke fodder. One of these
0: people is going to be the Republican nominee. I mean, unfortunately, this is pretty serious business. But yes, we seem to uh, uh, obsess on the uh, uh, perhaps uh, trivial, and it's, it's entertainment. Tony Horwitz, uh, have you begun working on your next book? I haven't. Uh, Usually you have a long lag time between when you finish a book and when it comes out. I only put the finishing touches on this a few months ago. So I really haven't had that uh, chance to kind of take a deep breath. But I'd like to stay with uh, 19th century
1: America if I can. Well, you did work on a documentary at one point. You plan to expand out and do more work in that field?
0: uh no yeah years ago i did a documentary about uh southern uh, timber workers who knows maybe if, if offered i uh, you know i i'd sure be interested <laughs> in uh, uh, uh you know uh doing a documentary but no i'm
1: i'm pretty open i'm uh I'm, i'd just like to catch my breath and explore a bit one final question when you're looking around for another thing what is it that makes you go this is it i mean what got you to cook What got you to the Mayflower? What got you to John Brown? What kind of thing just kind of goes, damn, that's it?
0: Yeah, in fact, it's almost never when you're looking for something that you find it. It usually just comes out of left field or does for me. I'll just be reading or something will happen or I'll see something out of the corner of my eye and I'm just curious about that and uh, start exploring it a bit, and then suddenly it's like, wow, there's something I really want to uh, dive into for a few years, you know, some question I have. It's, For me, it will never be a subject that I already know everything about. Then where's the uh, thrill of exploring it? You know, I want something that I know enough about, that I know it's intriguing, that I know there's something
1: there that hasn't been told. And then dive in, really not knowing where it's going to lead me. Looking back on this particular piece, what do you think you learned more than anything else? Is there anything that jumped at you and changed you in working on this uh, book about John Brown?
0: Huh. I hadn't ever done this kind of really sustained deep dish archival research history. One, I found it just, I loved it. I loved it. It's like treasure hunting, going into these archives for a week and and digging through it. I guess just, again, the individuals, it's easy with the Civil War in particular to kind of lose sight of individuals because you're you're overwhelmed by the scale of the the death and, and everything, and to remember that in each, you know, Each one of these acts, there are, you know, individuals behind it. That sounds kind of clichéd, but one of the wonders of this story is that it's small scale enough that you really can burrow into each of the individuals involved and really remember you know, that this is what's at stake. You know, there's a lot at stake individually and collectively for the people involved in this. And I don't know if that answers your question, but (laughs) that was one thing I
1: came away with. Uh, Well, it seems that uh, in reading the book, you liked some of the people like Cook, like John Cook. Yeah, I particularly like these young men who are with him, who are these sort of desperate young
0: idealists, you know, who are very passionate, but are also human beings, you know, writing their mom and, you know, uh, writing about her apple pie and baked beans and and writing their girlfriend. And as much as possible, I wanted to to make you know and care about
1: them and then sadly watch most of them get killed. Yeah, the the sense I get in reading the book and seeing Occupy that if they were around today, they'd probably just be part of that movement?
0: Perhaps. I mean, I think uh, there are some similarities. I mean, it's not 1859. I don't think we're on the brink of armed conflict. But, you know, in in troubled times, change does tend to bubble up from the extremes. And I think we're seeing that now on both uh, uh, right and left. And also people are drawn to sort of blunt, visceral solutions. And that's kind of what was part of Brown's appeal. He's this sort of human battering ram. And when people are angry, that that has a a real appeal. So I think there are similarities. And yes, these young men would have been involved in some way and working the girls in the crowd too.
1: You've been listening to a 2011 interview with the late Tony Horwitz, recorded while he was on tour for his book, Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.